This episode of Virtual Criminality contains spoilers for the video game Condemned Criminal Origins. Welcome to Virtual Criminality. I'm Ian Higton, and in this podcast, I combine two of my greatest passions, video gaming and true crime, into one gruesome whole. Each episode of Virtual Criminality will focus on a different video game villain, and I'll be presenting their fictional stories as fact in the style of a true crime podcast. That means, along with all the usual gory serial killer stuff that you'd expect from a real-world true crime podcast, there'll also be times when we get to explore not only the fantastical, but the supernatural too. So, if, like me, you're into true crime, video game theories and creepypastas, you, my friends, have come to the right place. When a killer kills another killer, are they actually doing the world a favour, or are they just continuing a cycle of evil that only justice can break? That's the burning question at the heart of this week's episode of Virtual Criminality, as I go back in time to 2005 to follow a grisly trail of corpses through the run-down streets and buildings of America's metro city. These aren't just any old corpses, though. As you'll soon see, many of them belong to brutal serial killers who, after terrorising the city with their own unique brands of savagery, somehow ended up being killed by their own methods. But who is behind these vigilante-style murders? Why are they doing them, and how come the FBI can't seem to stop them? Well, that's what we're all here to find out. So, with all that said and done, welcome to episode 2 of Virtual Criminality and the story of Leland Van Horn, a.k.a. Serial Killer X. On the 31st of August in 2005, Metro City Police Sergeant Greg Waters responded to dispatch reports of a body that had been found inside a condemned building just south of the city's rundown Wilshore and Park Industrial District. The streetlights in that part of the city had been shut off years ago, and for most people, its grimy alleyways full of broken bottles and rubble would have seemed like an impenetrable maze. Sergeant Waters, however, knew the area like the back of his hand, and body cam footage released from that night shows that he made his way through the pitch darkness to his destination quickly and confidently. After crossing under the bright yellow police tape that stretched around the perimeter of the entrance, Sergeant Waters can then be seen being escorted through to the lobby of the building by one of the patrolmen who had initially secured the scene. The office block he found himself in once belonged to the Monolith Paper Company, but in recent times it was mainly used as both a storage space for construction equipment during the day and a quiet place for some of the city's sizeable homeless population to congregate in at night. After passing by an old wooden reception desk, Waters is directed towards the storage room that lay just behind it. As Waters reaches the doorway, he then starts to scan the interior of the small box room with his flashlight. The once white walls at the back of the room were now a dull yellow, and they were crisscrossed with crudely drawn graffiti that is almost unreadable, faded just as much by the passage of time as they were by exposure to the elements. As Waters' attention moves down, the tobacco-stained yellow of the walls begins to be interrupted by spatters of something dark and wet. Waters inhales sharply and mutters a curse word under his breath. He knew in an instant what it was he was looking at. The light followed this thick liquid ever downwards as it changed from small, scattered spots to the unmistakable arching pattern of an arterial spray. Finally, Waters' flashlight comes to rest on the cold, tiled floor and the blood-soaked body that lay upon it. 
The corpse at Water's feet belonged to Connor McCormack, a 19-year-old college student whose family had reported him missing just five days earlier, after he failed to return home from the UMC, or University of Metro City, that evening. As reported by his classmates, Connor had left his lecture on construction engineering and management at around 2pm in order to head to the Wilshore and Park area for a job interview with a man named Frank Rook, who had claimed to work for a local property redevelopment company. According to the police report into Connor's initial disappearance, whoever that man was had given Connor a fake name. The contact details on the business card found amongst Mr McCormick's belongings had been falsified. The company listed, Preston Property Development Limited, found no records of a man with the name Frank Rook ever having worked there, it read. Back in the supply room, Waters was examining Connor's body from a distance. The student's shirt was drenched in blood, but at a glance, Waters could tell that he had multiple stab wounds to his torso, defensive wounds on his arms and a deep gash on the right-hand side of his neck, which had sliced right through his jugular. According to the coroner reports, these sharp force injuries were likely caused by a small folding knife, and while it was the cut to the jugular that proved fatal, Connor would likely have bled out from the torso wounds alone. Just as Waters was about to crouch down and inspect the body in more detail, a gentle cough can be heard from behind, and he turns to find the police officer who made the interruption, beckoning him towards another open door at the far end of the reception. Through that door was the real reason that Sergeant Greg Waters had been called to the crime scene, and as he trudged through the gloom, he saw something that made his blood run cold. This wasn't another body, though. This was something far more unsettling. At the end of the corridor were three lit candles, arranged in a line against the wall. Wax pulled around them, signalling the fact that they had been burning for a fair few hours already, and just above them on the wall, someone had taped a single Polaroid picture of Connor McCormack, taken in the moments before he bled to death on the supply room floor. As Waters leant down to examine the picture in more detail, he already knew what to expect. Just like the last three murder sites he'd visited, glued to the bottom of the Polaroid was a tiny piece of paper, taken from a fortune cookie that read, Share your happiness with others today. The modus operandi was identical. Connor McCormack had undoubtedly become the latest victim of Metro City's notorious Polaroid killer, also known as P.K. A couple of days after the discovery of Connor McCormack's body at the Monolith Paper Company, the investigation into the Polaroid killer caught a major break. Normally, a blood-soaked, grisly crime scene, three candles and a solitary photograph with a cryptic fortune attached were the only things that PK ever left behind after a murder. But for some reason, this time they'd been sloppy. Perhaps they were interrupted during the act, maybe by one of the homeless people who frequented the building, or maybe they'd just gotten careless. Either way, the coroner who performed McCormack's autopsy had also discovered a set of fingerprints in a transfer bloodstain found on the left-hand side of the victim's neck. At some point during the murder, or relatively soon after, the killer had not only touched some of Connor's wet blood, but then they'd grabbed Connor by the shoulders in order to move him slightly, most probably in order to pose him for the Polaroid. This momentary act of negligence left behind a pair of faint prints from both an index finger and a middle finger, which the coroner was then able to enhance and photograph after first treating them with a combination of chemical reagents. This discovery was significant enough to fast-track the investigation right up the chain and into the hands of Metro City's Serial Crimes Unit. 
The SCU, as it's often abbreviated, is a special branch of the FBI that is specifically dedicated to solving violent crimes that are suspected to be linked to those of serial killers. And according to recently declassified documents found on the FBI Records Vault website, on September the 3rd, 2005, SCU Acting Director Scott Stern assigned case number C-317-D66 to Special Agent Jared Mallory, a senior member of the team. In a typed cover letter, Stern writes, Mallory, I'm assigning you to a redacted investigation. A male college student was redacted and I need you to look into it. The case file is being sent to you now. Agent Mallory was in his mid-50s, but years of investigating some of the most heinous serial killings imaginable had taken their toll on his body, leaving him looking haggard and older than his age. In the past, Mallory was also responsible for investigating the brutal rampage of the Roadside Carver, a serial killer who would cut open the throats of female hitchhikers, and the multiple homicides committed by the Bone Cutter, who, you may remember, gained notoriety for cutting out the internal organs of his victims before neatly labelling them for the police to find. Details of these high-profile cases, of course, shocked the world at the time, but not just for the reasons you'd expect. You see, as hard as Mallory and his fellow SCU agents worked, they were never able to bring either of those killers to justice. Instead, the carver and the cutter became part of an ever-growing list of serial killers investigated by the SCU who were later found to have been murdered themselves. But, and this is crucial to why these cases have gained so much media exposure over the years, these weren't just instances of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, these serial killers were killed by the exact same methods that they themselves had used on their victims. The body of the roadside carver, for example, was uncovered on the 26th of March in 2003, lying in the undergrowth of a roadside ditch next to the bowling alley in Metro City's Trenton district. His throat had been slashed open from ear to ear and the blood-soaked, ivory-handled, serrated steak knife that the SCU forensics team discovered beside his body was subsequently found to have been the murder weapon that the carver had used on each of his previous victims. By the time of the Polaroid killer case, six serial killers in total had been found executed in this bizarre copycat manner and this was while all of them had also been under investigation by the SCU. The dumpster strangler, the window washer, the crescent moon killer and the lunatic slasher all joined the bone cutter and the roadside carver as victims of what some people assumed to be a mystery vigilante. The tabloids, of course, ran wild with this idea and they ended up giving the culprit the nickname Serial Killer X or SKX for short. This in turn led conspiracy theorists to suggest that perhaps the work of SKX was actually being performed by one or more members of the Serial Crimes Unit itself. Who else would be in a better place to find and dispatch these killers than the team tasked with investigating them, they posited? These ludicrous claims cast serious aspersions on the Serial Crimes Unit and will only serve to hamper our investigations as they move forward, a visibly angry Stern told Metro News 5's Kimberly Colborne during a press conference held in the aftermath of the shock discovery of the bone cutter's remains. Located amongst the mass of crime scene photos and footage, forensic notes and coroner reports found in the vault's files for case C-317-D66 was yet another message from Stern to Mallory, dated once again September 3rd, 2005. 
This time a handwritten note rather than an official letter. It read, Mallory, those fingerprints from the body belong to a Christopher Vine. I ran a background check on him and found out that he has been in and out of mental institutions since he was a teenager. I'm having the sheriff start a search for Vine now. A colour photograph of Vine was attached to the bottom of the letter. He was a white male, approximately 30 years of age, with short, side-swept brown hair, and, as was the style back in the early 2000s, he had a dark goatee growing on his chin. Despite his troubled past, Vine really was your average-looking, forgettable type of man, and just the sort of person who could easily commit a terrible act and then blend into a crowd and disappear without arousing suspicion. Later the next day, Metro City Sheriff Derek Chatwood contacted Mallory via phone, stating that it was a matter of utmost urgency. A couple of hours earlier, officers had called in reports of a suspect matching Vine's description emerging from the old Walker doll factory at 351 Crestridge. When the reporting officers entered that building, they were confronted by a horrific sight. There, lying on the floor in the middle of the workshop, was the body of a young woman, later identified as missing art student Mary Jo Lang. She had multiple stab wounds on her torso, a large open cut on the right-hand side of her neck, and next to the body were an assortment of candles. The scene bore all the hallmarks of a PK killing, but this time, instead of a Polaroid attached to the wall, officers instead found a hastily scrawled note underneath a desk near Mary's body. It was covered in Vine's prints and it simply read, I left something for you at 46 Pine. Now, it's not exactly clear why Agent Mallory decided to head to this location on his own rather than waiting for backup to arrive, but thankfully we do have a pretty good idea of the sequence of events that followed. Snippets of footage found in the FBI vault that have been taken from Mallory's car-mounted dashcam and FBI-issued body cam show that he arrived at 46 Pine Street at exactly 2.32am on the 5th of September. The night sky was cloudy and dark and the building, an old abandoned animal shelter, was without power so Mallory pulled out his flashlight and his sidearm and then slowly walked inside. Bare concrete covered the walls and floors of the lobby and in the footage you can hear Mallory's echoing footsteps blending in with the steady sound of splashing as water dripped from rusted pipes and pooled in the centre of the room. The footage then cuts to the moment that Mallory enters the kennels area of the shelter, where rows of large cages lined the back wall. As Mallory inspects the interior of the very first cage in the kennels, he's met with an unexpected sight, the unmistakable glow of three lit candles. Just like in earlier PK crime scenes, the candles are lined up in a row, and their soft light is illuminating a Polaroid photo that is stuck to the wall behind them. As Mallory leans in to take a closer look at the photo, you can hear him let out a slight gasp, and for good reason. The image on the wall shows the head and shoulders of a male corpse, eyes wide open in death, with blood spatter covering his face, short, side-swept brown hair and his distinctive dark goatee. That's right, the photo Mallory had discovered was of none other than Christopher Vine himself, the prime suspect in the Polaroid killings. There's not enough time to make out the fortune affixed to the bottom of the Polaroid before Mallory stands up and spins around, but in the FBI's crime scene photos, its cryptic message is on full show. It is hard for an empty bag to stand upright, it reads. As Mallory exits the cage, his movements become much faster and more erratic. You can see him scanning the entire room, working his way along the row of cages and inspecting each one closely before moving on to the next. 
His breathing is ragged and loud, and it's obvious that he's panicked. But when his flashlight comes to rest on a small puddle of blood in the shallow gutter that runs along the middle of the kennels, he steadies himself and seems to regain some composure. The dark red liquid that formed the puddle was running out of the mouth of one of the cages in two thin streams, and at the back of that cage, Mallory came upon their source, the corpse of Christopher Vine. Just like in the Polaroid, he was on his back, his eyes were wide open, and his face was covered in blood. In the footage, you can clearly see that his torso, wrists and neck all bore similar stab wounds to those of previous PK victims. What you don't see, though, is what the forensics team found later. Underneath the body of Christopher Vine lay the same small folding knife that was thought to be PK's signature murder weapon. What happens next is a bit of a blur, literally, as the footage from Mallory's body cam suddenly becomes very dark and distorted. Just as Mallory crouches to examine Vine's body, we hear a heavy impact sound, potentially that of wood on bone, followed by the noise of a scuffle and a couple of grunts. Then the footage steadies slightly as we see Mallory run towards the back of the kennels and into a side corridor. According to police reports, Mallory's gun was later found on the floor in close proximity to Vine's body, suggesting that the initial blow from this unarmed attacker disarmed him and caused him to flee once he had broken free from their grip. The footage then cuts once again, this time to a shot of an open door. It's not the clearest of images, as it seems Mallory was taking cover behind a cupboard or shelving unit at this point, but you can just about catch a glimpse of his pursuer, a man in light trousers and a khaki-coloured hooded jacket, appearing in the dingy doorway. In his right hand is a two-by-four lump of wood that swings menacingly as he moves, and as the man comes to a stop and peers into the room, Mallory holds his breath. And then, just as the tension borders on the unbearable, the unknown assailant simply walks away, back off into the unlit corridor beyond. As Mallory breathes a sigh of relief and begins to compose himself, he turns slowly to survey his hiding place. As he does so, his body cam turns with him, and we see the footage come to rest on a small side window that's set into the far wall of the room. Tragically, Mallory doesn't spot this opening until it's too late, and suddenly the light from the tiny opening is blocked out by the grey-green colour of a hooded khaki jacket. In that moment, we can just about make out the face of a white man with dark brown hair as he leans down to look into the room before Mallory frantically bolts towards the exit and the camera cuts once again. The body cam footage of what happens next has never been released to the public, but the details listed in Agent Mallory's autopsy report makes the events that followed pretty clear. The coroner states that Mallory was found with four large contusions on his torso, one on his chest and three on his back. From the surface area of these wounds and the resulting tissue damage, it's highly likely that these impacts were powerful enough to have stunned Mallory and knocked him face down onto the ground where the fatal blow was then delivered. At the bottom of the autopsy report, Agent Mallory's cause of death is listed as blunt force trauma to the back of his skull, caused by a crushing blow that was delivered by the edge of a 2 by 4 plank of wood. Although Stern categorically dismissed the idea in subsequent press conferences, it didn't take long for the tabloids to draw a line between Agent Mallory's murder and the mysterious, yet hypothetical, methods of serial killer X. 
had Mallory caught SKX in the act, just as they were dispensing their own unique brand of justice on the Polaroid killer, they pondered. Due to the discovery of drug paraphernalia in the pound, the official line from the FBI was that Agent Mallory had accidentally stumbled across an active drug deal and had paid the price with his life. But as the FBI had been unable to apprehend his murderer or murderers, this only served to fan the flames of the conspiracy theorists. After Mallory's death, his remaining open cases were handed to fellow SCU agent Ethan Thomas. At 35 years old, with a stocky build and short-cropped black hair, Ethan came from a troubled background and was bounced between foster homes from an early age after his parents were tragically killed in a car accident while he was attending summer camp. Although he only achieved average grades at school, they were enough to gain him entry to the University of Metro City, where he found himself on a fast track to the FBI after acing his courses in criminal psychology and law enforcement. Ethan then worked as a criminal profiler for the FBI for just over 10 years, before his uncanny ability to visualise a crime scene and decipher important information regarding the perpetrator earned him a transfer to the Serial Crimes Unit in 2001. At 11.48pm on November 15th, 2005, just two months after the murder of Agent Mallory, Agent Ethan Thomas pulled up to the rear entrance of the old Wiseman office building in his dark blue agency-issue Ford Taurus. Ethan was there to meet Detective Nathan Dickinson of the Metro City PD, who quickly ushered him under a line of police tape and down into the damp and dingy corridors of the Wiseman office's basement. Thanks to an abundance of body cam footage available from that night, we can not only get a good look at just how dilapidated the interior of that building was, but we can also find out the exact reason why these two men were currently trudging their way through a thin layer of muck. In the following clip, you'll hear the slightly surly voice of an impatient Detective Dickinson. Come on, let's go. Body's rotten as we speak. The patrolman on duty said there was a mannequin involved, just like the matchmaker. With over seven murders attributed to them in Metro City alone, and with a bizarre MO that involved murdering young women and then posing them with facially disfigured male mannequins, the matchmaker was one of the most proficient and high-profile serial killers being hunted by the SCU at that point in time. But, unfortunately for the Bureau, they were also an incredibly careful serial killer, and this meant that their list of suspects at this point was basically non-existent. After trudging through the darkness for a while, Agent Thomas and Detective Dickinson emerged from the basement and onto the first floor of the Wiseman building, where they meet Officer Michael Becker. Becker was on patrol when he found the body and had secured the crime scene while he waited for members of the Bureau to arrive and, now that one was here, he moved away from the entrance to a large open room and steered Ethan and Detective Dickinson inside. As Ethan approaches the crime scene, he begins to scan the room. There are plenty of similarities to previous matchmaker cases in view, including an assortment of creepy, faceless, child-sized mannequins positioned around the edges of the room, and hundreds of crudely drawn eyes were scrawled on the white walls behind them in black ink too, their placement seemingly a random, frenzied mess. Just like the faceless mannequins, they were also looking inwards at the matchmaker's handiwork, so Ethan put them both to the back of his mind and continued to survey the scene. The room itself was pretty bare, save for some old bits of scaffolding to the side and some rusty pipes running along the roof. In the centre of the room, one single bare light bulb hung from a thin black wire, gently lighting the twisted tableau below it. 
Someone had set out a small table, covered it with a dirty white tablecloth and decorated it with two grimy plates, two smashed wine glasses and an old tin bucket in an effort to recreate a scene similar to that of a romantic candlelit meal at a restaurant. Positioned next to the table were two chairs, one of which was laying on its side on the floor, while the other had the torso of an adult male mannequin resting upon it. The mannequin was old and battered, but it had been dressed in a white shirt and a dark blue suit jacket, mimicking the look of a man trying to look smart for a first date. Its right arm was outstretched as if reaching for one of the glasses of wine, while the left hung by the mannequin's side. There was blood spatter all over the mannequin, the tablecloth and the rag that hung from the side of the tin bucket, and as Ethan looks over to the fallen chair, he finds its source. There on the floor lay the fully clothed corpse of a young woman. She'd obviously been deceased for quite a while, as rigor mortis had already set in, freezing her body into an unnatural position. Her legs were awkwardly intertwined with the overturned chair, one of her shoes had fallen off, and a heavy metal chain was wrapped around her mouth, nose and upper torso. From the looks of things, the woman's body had initially been sitting at the table opposite the mannequin, but over time the weight of the chain may have slowly pulled the body from the chair, causing them both to topple over. At a glance, Ethan could see marks on the woman's wrists and ankles, suggesting that at some point she had been bound by rope. The dark bruising around the markings pointed to the fact that this had been done while she was still alive and that her killer had then removed those bindings post-mortem in order to pose her body at the table. Ethan wastes no more time and pulls out his forensic field kit, reaching for his UV light first in order to try and determine the cause of death. He switches on the detection tool and it begins to cast a gentle purplish light from the bulb, which he then slowly passes over the woman's body until it illuminates a large bruise-like ligature mark on her neck. Ethan then pulls out his high-tech SCU-issue handheld 3D scanner and begins to scan the area around the marking, using it to quickly create a three-dimensional rendering of the evidence that was then wirelessly transmitted back to the SCU lab for examination. Ethan didn't need to wait for those results, however, as it was quite clear that the woman had been strangled to death by hand. The manual chokehold that her killer had used was so forceful that it was possible to make out the exact shape of the fingers that had applied the pressure to her neck. Well, some of them at least, as the bruise intensity not only suggested that the killer was right-handed, but also that they were missing the index finger on that hand. Satisfied that he'd established the woman's cause of death, Ethan then removes another device from his bag, a handy little gadget called the SCU laser light that is capable of illuminating latent pieces of evidence which are normally invisible to the naked eye. The laser works best in the dark, so Ethan asks Becker to shut off the lights before he then begins searching the rest of the grisly diorama for trace evidence, and it doesn't take long for him to find some. The head of the male mannequin bloomed with a bright green light as the laser passed over it, highlighting a strange marking on the left-hand side of its face. That was all Ethan needed to see to know for sure that this crime had been committed by the matchmaker. It was, of course, exactly the same mark that had been found on all the other male mannequins at the previous crime scenes, and crucially, that marking was one of the only details that the SCU had never revealed to the press. This could only mean that this was the real deal and not the work of a copycat killer.
Less than 24 hours later, thanks to the hard work of the SCU forensics team, not only had the matchmaker's latest victim been identified as missing gym instructor Sasha Runnels, but there was also a new lead on a potential location for her killer's hideout. SCU forensics analyzer and chief lab technician, Lieutenant Rosa Angel, had managed to contact the manufacturer of the male mannequin used in the tableau at the Wiseman office, and through them learned that it was a unique product created specifically for a department store situated in Metro City. Located at 645 Burnside Boulevard, Bart's department store was a notorious crack den and squat. It was shut down just before Christmas, approximately 10 years ago, and since then it had fallen into severe disrepair, with the basement area especially suffering from severe flood damage. This wasn't enough to dissuade Ethan, however, and thanks once again to a wealth of body cam footage available from his subsequent investigation of the store, we're able to see just how much of a state Bart's was in. What was left of the carpets was covered in mould and broken glass from the looted display cabinets. The plaster on the walls was rotting away, exposing the wooden beams behind them, and overturned clothing racks and piles of garbage littered the corridors and walkways. What really makes Ethan's footage so unsettling to watch, though, isn't just the fact that you can plainly see male mannequins on display that are identical to the ones used at the Wiseman Building crime scene, or that masses of crumbling cobweb-covered Christmas decorations were still on display all these years later. No, it was the fact that some of the in-store speakers were still pumping out weirdly warped holiday music that you can just about hear in this short clip. There was no doubt in Ethan's mind at this point that the matchmaker had, at the very least, recently visited the store to collect props for his latest diorama, so he pressed on with his search. Passing by battered shop fronts with mangled shutters and old rat-infested changing rooms as he went. After about ten minutes of searching, the body cam footage shows Ethan entering a stockroom at the back of an old clothing store. The power is still working and the centre of the room is brightly lit, making the five facially disfigured mannequins arranged around it stand out in stark contrast against the whitewashed walls. Sensing he might have found what he was looking for, Ethan immediately pulls out his laser light to search for trace evidence and begins shining it around the room. His eyes soon become drawn to a desk set in a small alcove in the corner. An overturned tin of paint is resting on the desk, and what's left of its contents have spilled out, creating a small puddle of red liquid on its surface. As the green light from the laser passes over the paint, a clear impression of a full handprint bursts into view. It's in the shape of a right hand, but it's missing the right index finger, matching the handprint recovered from the Wiseman crime scene. After scanning the print and uploading the 3D image wirelessly to the SCU lab, Ethan then pulls out his UV light in order to comb the room for any remaining organic evidence that may help further identify the identity of the matchmaker. This search doesn't take long, though, as the wall behind the desk lights up like a star-filled night sky as soon as the purple UV light hits it, reacting with a mess of blood spatter and causing it to glow with a bright pink hue. Ethan quickly readies his digital camera and takes shots of the blood spatter, once again uploading them straight to the SCU lab team for evaluation. With the evidence found indicating the presence of another matchmaker victim, Ethan exits the stockroom and resumes his search. 
With his laser light shining onto the dark floor, Ethan soon pinpoints fresh drag marks that are consistent with the size and shape of a human body, so he follows them back out into the store and towards the changing rooms. The drag marks abruptly end at the entrance to the women's section, and the next thing the body cam footage shows is Ethan opening the wooden doors to each changing booth in turn. He gives each one a cursory glance before moving on to the next, until finally he enters a particularly large corner cubicle and comes face to face with yet another matchmaker crime scene. Only this time, there is one big difference. Instead of a female corpse and a male mannequin, this tableau featured a male corpse and a female mannequin. Both are propped up in the corner of the room in standing positions. The female mannequin on the left is naked and it has its left arm outstretched. The palm of its left hand is facing outwards as if it was frozen in the act of pushing something away. The male corpse is positioned on the right of the mannequin so that they are facing one another. The man's right arm is also outstretched and it's taped to the left wrist of the mannequin, his greying, decomposing hand gripping the fiberglass forearm tightly. Ethan snaps some wide shots of the scene with his digital camera and uploads them to the lab before moving closer to take a photograph of the victim's face. Ethan's first thought was simply to send the picture to the lab for evaluation. The team there should easily be able to identify the man, he thought. But as the face comes into focus on the screen of the camera, you can tell that Ethan would have known exactly what he was looking at. The decaying flesh on the male corpse's face bore scars that were consistent with the painted marks left on all of the male mannequins found at previous matchmaker crime scenes. Ethan raises his camera once again, this time to get a clear shot of the corpse's right hand. As he zooms in on the hand, the image on the digital screen grows in detail until his suspicions are substantiated. The right hand was missing its index finger and it is clear from the scarring that the wound isn't recent. There was no doubt about it, this was the corpse of the matchmaker himself. There was one final test that Ethan needed to do in order to confirm the worrying theory that was growing in his head though. In the footage, he reaches into his field kit and once again fishes out the laser light, which he then shines directly at the matchmaker's head. Sure enough, right there on his neck were strangulation marks, the clearest of which was in the shape of a right hand. Just like the other serial killers, the matchmaker had been killed with his own M.O. And so, for the first time since the tabloid rumours started, Ethan was finally ready to take the idea of a killer who killed killers seriously. Serial Killer X was the real deal. Ethan was looking at the proof with his own eyes. But who were they and how could he track them down? Ethan rummaged in his field kit and pulled out his final collection tool, a handheld sampler that was capable of evaluating the chemical makeup of pieces of evidence before it transmitted those results back to the lab for identification. Seconds later, Lieutenant Rosa called Ethan with the results. What is it? Too early to call. Small particles that show up as a potential organophosphate pesticide. The line of inquiry regarding the organophosphate pesticide found on the matchmaker's skin quickly hit a dead end, but the macabre killer's identity was soon uncovered during the subsequent autopsy. The matchmaker was a metro city local of no fixed abode who went by the name Alexander Pfeiffer. 
he'd had various run-ins with the law throughout his life, ranging from petty theft through to multiple cases of aggravated assault and a five-year stint in Metro City Correction Centre for assault in the second degree after he used a pocket knife to cut a cab driver in the abdomen. Although his personal motives will never be known for certain, SCU profilers believe that, by creating his tableaus, Pfeiffer was able to regain control over moments of great personal shame from his past, and this in turn allowed him to retrospectively exact a form of revenge on the women who had previously rejected him due to his physical deformities. With Ethan now joining the tabloids and becoming convinced that serial killer X was indeed a real person, his mind went back to the final unresolved open case that Mallory had been investigating just before his death. If serial killer X was somehow stalking exactly the same killers that the SCU was hunting, then that could only mean that Mallory's last target, the torturer, was next on their hit list. The torturer, however, was different to the previous eight suspected victims of SKX in the fact that they'd never actually physically killed anyone. Instead, the torturer would use despair as their primary murder weapon by first capturing their victims and then torturing them in the most despicable ways possible before suddenly letting them go. Then, just as they thought they were on the brink of escape, the torturer would snatch their victims up once again in order to resume their torment. This would happen over and over and over again until finally their victims would lose all hope and commit suicide. For the next three weeks, things went quiet for Ethan and the SCU, but then, on the 7th of December, a brand new lead literally walked into the Metro City Police Department. Here's an audio recording from a news report that was broadcast later that night. This is Jennifer Alden reporting from police headquarters. Developments in the case of the torturer serial killer. A retired gym teacher from the city's juvenile rehabilitation program has informed police of contact he had almost eight years ago with a troubled youth named Carl Anderson, who reported fantasies that match the torturer's methods exactly. Authorities are now asking the public to inform police if they know of Carl Anderson's whereabouts. Do not approach the suspect, as he should be considered armed and dangerous. Sources within the police department are telling me they are also concerned because their informant can no longer be located. Department spokespersons have refused comment on this latest development. This is Jennifer Alban reporting for News Channel 5. Obviously, Stern and the rest of the SCU were furious with the police officers who had not only let the informant leave the building, but had also given away the potential identity of the torturer to the press. If Carl Anderson really was the torturer, this newfound publicity could drive him underground, making it incredibly hard to track him down, or even worse, knowing that the feds were closing in on him, he could even up the frequency of his attacks in order to make the most of his remaining free time before being caught. Thankfully, the police had been clever enough to keep one important piece of information out of the news cycle, though, and that was the name of the now-missing informant, Samuel Tibbetts. According to public records, Tibbetts worked as a gym teacher at St. Joseph's Secondary School from 1996 to 1999. Located on North East 52nd and Fremont, St. Joseph's wasn't just any old secondary school. It was in fact an educational rehabilitation centre for the severely troubled, and Carl Anderson had been enrolled there, or more accurately, had been sentenced to attend there at around about the same time that Tibbetts was a member of the faculty. 
By the time of Tibbetts' disappearance, the school itself had been closed down for over five years, but considering it was the only solid link between Anderson and Tibbetts, Ethan took it upon himself to search the location for clues, but not before contacting Lieutenant Rosa at exactly 2.45am on the 8th of December, asking that she and the rest of her team return to the lab and remain on standby. Although it's been gentrified now, back in 2005, Northeast 52nd and Fremont was one of the worst parts of town, and in the five years since the school had been abandoned, the interior had been gutted, torn apart by vandals, addicts and scavengers looking for copper pipes, wire, plumbing fixtures and anything else that looked like it could be sold on for a profit. You can really see that devastation in the last chunk of Ethan's body cam footage that was released by the FBI, and as he makes his way through the rotting and rusted corridors, you can just about hear him mutter something to himself about needing to book in a tetanus shot. After about 15 minutes of searching, Ethan enters a ramshackle classroom in the school's science block, where discarded Erlenmeyer flasks and empty plastic containers were strewn around the room, suggesting that it was once used as a teaching lab for chemistry students. Now, before I describe the next events shown on the body cam, I'd like to issue a quick content warning, especially for those of you who may be eating right now. The following events shown in Ethan's footage from the school are incredibly disturbing, extremely graphic, and they are some of the most sickening things that I've ever had the misfortune to witness during my years of covering true crime. What follows is definitely not for the faint-hearted. As Ethan nears the back of the teaching lab, where the teacher would have stood to conduct their lessons, he spots a freestanding blackboard leaning against the side wall. As he turns to face it, even in the darkness you can just about make out the words written upon it in chalk. Loose lips sink ships, they read. By the time Ethan is next to the blackboard, he already has his UV light in his hand, and it instantly drenches the area in front of him in a soft purple hue. That purple is quickly interrupted by a series of neon pink splatters near the bottom of the blackboard and on the floor below it, signifying that a large amount of blood had been shed at the scene. Ethan then moves closer to the board to inspect the thin shelf at the bottom, which, in the past, would have been used to hold sticks of chalk and blackboard erasers. This time, though, there is a lump of flesh resting there, covered in clotted chunks of blood. A streak of hot pink above it runs downwards towards the lump, suggesting that whoever placed it there first stuck the thing to the blackboard, where it stayed before slowly sliding down the smooth black surface until it came to rest on the shelf. Ethan then readies his handheld sampler tool, scanning the strange flap of skin and sending the data back to the SCU lab in real time. Rosa calls him on his cell phone almost instantly. What follows next is the audio from that call. Processing. This may take a few. Human tissue. Colour adipose deposits and adjacent facial hair stubble indicate that these are human lips and facial skin. And before you ask, yes, Tibbetts' medical records provided his blood type. It's a match with the facial tissue. That's right, someone, but almost certainly the torturer, had used a pair of blunt scissors to crudely cut the lips and skin from around Samuel Tibbetts' mouth, and then they had attempted to stick them to the blackboard using the blood and gore that was oozing from the flesh as an adhesive. This wasn't just a normal torture session. This was a torture session dressed up as a sick school lesson where the perpetrator lectured Tibbets on the importance of keeping secrets all while they brutally cut the skin from his face. 
The footage from Ethan's body cam then cuts to another part of the school, this time the gymnasium area where Tibbetts would have taught PE to the students. The gym, while in an obvious state of disrepair, still had all the hallmarks of a classic American school sports hall on show, including bleachers, a viewing balcony and a basketball court painted onto the once polished, now highly scuffed wooden floor. As Ethan explores the room, we can see him approaching a fuse box which he fiddles with in an attempt to turn on the power. Somehow it works, and, along with some electrical crackles and fizzles, we're also able to hear a whirring sound coming from above him. As Ethan looks upwards towards the origin of the sound, a mechanical basketball backboard drops down from the ceiling and locks into position above the court. An arm severed just below the left shoulder can be seen dangling from the bare metal loop of the basketball hoop. It's attached at the wrist by a single shoelace and there is congealed blood slowly leaking from the wound and dripping onto the floor. Next we see Ethan's laser light and scanner coming into view and he then aims both of these upwards at the hanging arm, simultaneously highlighting the fingerprints on the hand with the light whilst also sending a 3D image of it back to the lab with the scanner. Rosa calls Ethan again. Here's that audio. Transfer complete. It's Tibbetts. Fingerprints from his personnel file match the hand. It looks like the torturer got to him before we did. With the torturer, a.k.a. Carl Anderson, now the prime suspect, Ethan knew that there was at least a slim chance that he could still rescue Tibbetts. Yes, he'd been horrifically tortured already, but if Ethan could find him before Anderson finally broke him, perhaps he could kill two birds with one stone and save Tibbetts at the same time as apprehending Anderson. We next see Ethan leaving the gym and heading into the locker room area off to the side, stopping only once to scan and collect a sample from a bloodstain on a wall. Rosa confirms with him moments later that this is also Tibbet's blood and that therefore he must be on the right trail. So Ethan heads deeper into the room, opening a rusty mesh screen door at the end of it, which promptly falls from its hinges with a huge metallic crash. As Ethan rounds the next corner, a warren of old metal gym lockers looms into view from out of the darkness. Rusted and covered in flaking yellow paint, most of their doors now hung open, their locking mechanisms broken years ago by the persistent leverage of a greedy looter's crowbar. Ethan, with his torch out, worked his way through this dark maze of lockers and towards a patch of light at the back of the room, where, for some reason, one of the only working light bulbs in the building shone its light over a U-shaped arrangement of lockers. That one working light bulb must have been very close to retirement, though, because as soon as Ethan approached the lockers, it popped, instantly shrouding the rows of metal containers in darkness. The next thing we can see in the footage is the light from Ethan's UV tool as he points it at the door of one of the lockers, bringing with it the bright pink glow of a bloodstain as he does so. He collects another piece of evidence with his scanner and, once again, Rosa calls him back with a positive ID on Tibbetts. Ethan then puts away his UV light and scanner, switches his flashlight back on and, as if he knows exactly what he's about to see, whips open the blood-covered locker door in front of him to find the mutilated body of Samuel Tibbetts crammed inside. The back wall and bottom shelf of the locker are drenched in blood from the dismemberment wound below his left shoulder and the still moist liquid glistens in the torchlight. Tibbet's face is a bloody mess of torn skin and exposed teeth. His trousers are soiled and he is leaning limply against the left-hand side of the locker. 
Ethan was too late to save Tibbets, but he had to remain professional. He had to do his job, starting with evidence collection. So, after regaining his composure, we see him ready his camera and take a photo of the corpse so that the lab team could officially identify it. On Rose's orders, Ethan then moves in to take a close-up shot of Tibbet's facial wounds, but just as the image on the camera's display starts to gather focus, something horrific happens. With a muffled cry of pain, Tibbets lurches towards the camera and reaches out with his remaining arm, grabbing a startled Ethan by the neck before pulling him towards him and into the locker. This next audio clip contains the voice of Samuel Tibbets, and it is incredibly disturbing. Please listen with caution. Help. Help me. Help is on the way. Who did this to you? Carl Anderson. The torturer. Okay, take it easy. Do you know where he is now? Other man. Gang. Carl away. Let me hear and then, just as suddenly as he'd grabbed Ethan, Tibbets can be seen tumbling out from the blood-soaked locker and landing on the tiled floor of the room beneath it, where he bled out just seconds later. The torturer, it seems, had finally physically killed one of his victims, but crucially, this wasn't done by choice. Tibbets had died because someone, the other man, as Tibbets had called him, had stolen Carl Anderson away before he could find Tibbets and drive him to suicide. And there was only one person in the world who could have gotten to Anderson first. Serial Killer X. Later that night, after Tibbets' body was brought back to the morgue, it was examined by the coroner, who listed his cause of death as exsanguination, which, in layman's terms, means blood loss from the wounds inflicted by the torturer. Curiously, the coroner's report also noted that there were trace samples of organophosphate particles present on the body, which were an exact match to the pesticides also found on the matchmaker's neck. After further analysis at the SCU lab, the results came back that this pesticide was something called azimphosmethyl, a class 1 highly toxic insecticide that was previously used for all sorts of agricultural crops, but had later been banned for domestic use in 2002. According to the SCU lab reports, however, this particular formation of azimphosmethyl contained small traces of other chemicals that meant it could only be matched to a brand name called Apple Well. This was exactly what the SCU needed, a brand new lead, and soon after putting in a request with Apple Well for a purchaser's list, the team got a hit. There were no licensed fruit orchards located anywhere inside Metro City or in the surrounding countryside of Briar at that time, but there was once. Appleseed Orchard was located just outside of Briar on Route 4, and it had been in business for over 40 years, before closing its doors in 1995 due to a tremendous outbreak of apple maggots, and, just like its produce, it had sat there rotting ever since. Unfortunately, there is no more body cam footage available from this point onwards, so I've had to piece together the following events from declassified SCU reports and official statements given by Agent Thomas himself. By the time Ethan made his way to Appleseed Orchard, it was late at night on Saturday 10th of December. 
As the orchard was located out in the wilderness, the area surrounding it was pitch black. But as Ethan drove up the gravel road that linked the Appleseed Orchard estate with the Route 4 highway, the headlights from his car soon lit up the dilapidated manor house at the end of the road where the owners of the orchard used to live. As he got out of the car and looked around the outskirts of the building, Ethan remembers having second thoughts about the theory that this was SKX's hideout. Everything was so quiet and still and there were no signs of recent activity anywhere on the property. Then, just as he was about to leave, he noticed the faint glow of a lamplight coming from one of the bedrooms at the back of the house. Ethan ran upstairs at full pelt and straight into a large semi-furnished room where, right at the centre, he found the corpse of a man. It looked like the man had impaled himself through the stomach with a fire poker that had been stuck into the floor, sharp end pointing upwards. SCU reports from Lieutenant Rosa tell us that, after discovering the body, Ethan then scanned the prints on the corpse's left hand, which the lab was able to quickly tie to the torturer himself, Carl Anderson. Hearing this result, Ethan then flipped the body over, only to find that someone had removed almost all of the skin from Anderson's face, leaving only an ugly mass of torn facial muscles and some wide, eyelidless eyes staring back at him blankly. According to Ethan, that grisly image, along with the sound of a creaking floorboard, are the last things that he can remember before something hard smashed into the back of his head, knocking him out cold. Ethan isn't sure exactly how long he was out, but he was unconscious for long enough for his assailant to drag him outside and into a nearby barn, where he was then tied by his wrists to a wall with a couple of lengths of old baling twine. The first thing he felt as he came to was a dull throbbing at the back of his head. He had a strange ringing in his ears and his vision took a few moments to clear, but as it did, a white male with medium-length dark brown hair appeared in front of him. He had a small goatee on his chin, sideburns that grew down to his jawline, he was wearing a green-grey khaki jacket and denim jeans, and he was brandishing a huge hunting knife. It took Ethan a second or two to recognise him, but when it clicked, he was sure. This was undoubtedly the same man as the one he'd seen stalking Agent Mallory in the body cam footage from the day that he was murdered. This was Serial Killer X, the man not only behind the murders of nine evil killers, but also that of his friend and colleague too. Ethan felt a white-hot ball of anger rising in his chest. Next, I'm going to play you a clip from the TV show SKX, a 10-part dramatised version of the Serial Killer X story that premiered on Netflix a couple of years ago. The voice you'll hear is that of Peter Jacobs, the actor who played Serial Killer X, but the words spoken were lifted almost verbatim from the official FBI transcripts taken from Ethan's body cam footage. That means this is as accurate a record of the events that followed as there possibly could be without the FBI releasing the actual body cam footage. Welcome to consciousness, my friend. Though you won't enjoy it long. We were good in the beginning. But you turned out to be kind of a failure, didn't you? Huh? <laughs> you still don't get it? I've been using you, Ethan Thomas. <laughs> I watched you and followed you and used you to find the serial killers you so desperately sought and then killed them. Okay, I must admit, I was a bit dramatic. Killed them the same way they'd killed their own victims. <laughs> a bit of fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I got good at it. Of course, since you're no longer going to be any help, uh, there's no reason to go on this way. Uh, how would you prefer to die? I didn't like the torturer's methods much. Too risky. Perhaps a slit across the throat, like the roadside carver. Ah, short and sweet. Or maybe the bone cutter. Neatly dissected the body, removed the internal organs, and labeled them for the police to find. Oh, yes, he was one of mine, too. We were so close to him, but I got there first. <laughs> Perhaps it would be better if you lost a finger. Ethan's scream echoed around the deserted estate as SKX's knife sliced through the index finger on his left hand, severing it from his body. The pain from the wound was intense, but Ethan's anger was even greater, and so, with a loud roar, he launched himself at SKX, whose cackling confidence was instantly replaced by a look of pure panic. Too wrapped up in his cocky little display of showboating and gloating, SKX had made one huge miscalculation. In order to easily cut off Ethan's finger, SKX had loosened the twine around his left wrist, and so, using the adrenaline from the pain and rage that followed, Ethan was able to easily tear himself free from his remaining binding. The pair hit the floor hard, the impact winding SKX and knocking the knife from his hand. Ethan then straddled SKX and began to hammer him in the face over and over again with his right fist until finally the red mist cleared and he was able to stagger to his feet. Looking down at the bloodied face of the incapacitated man below him helped Ethan regain some clarity, as did the sharp pain that was now pulsing from the wound on his hand. Reaching into his pocket, Ethan pulled out his cell phone to call for backup and an EMT, but just as he did so, he caught a glimpse of movement from out of the corner of his eye. SKX was awake, he'd rolled onto his side, and he was reaching around to pull something out from behind his back. As SKX's hand came into view, Ethan saw the glint of gunmetal and time slowed down to a crawl. The two men locked eyes as SKX raised the barrel of the pistol towards Ethan and smiled through bloodied lips, a weak giggle escaping through bubbles of red saliva. And then, in the blink of an eye, SKX pulled his arm back, rammed the barrel of the gun under his own chin and squeezed the trigger. The gunshot wound was fatal and serial killer X died instantly. But of course, that is not where this story ends. Serial killer X may have taken his motives to the grave with him, but Ethan was still alive and he and the rest of the SCU team were hungry for answers. Who was SKX and what had driven him to commit his crimes? Why, apart from the murder of Agent Mallory and the attempted murder of Ethan, did he only go for killers? And most importantly, how on earth did he manage to stay one step ahead of the SCU at all times? Once the forensics team got hold of the body, the answers to these questions started coming in thick and fast. Lieutenant Rosa got a positive ID from SKX's DNA almost immediately, and soon the name Leland Van Horn was on the front of every major newspaper in the United States and beyond. Little is known about Leland's background or personal life, aside from the fact that he was the nephew of Malcolm Van Horn, the multi-millionaire owner of a highly successful real estate firm. 
His police record was spotless, there's no information in any public records about his school life, and as far as anyone can tell, Leland hadn't worked a day in his life. Instead, it seemed he just leached money from his wealthy relatives like Malcolm, who, in the FBI interviews that followed, admitted that he only saw Leland every couple of years when he came looking for handouts. Searches of Leland's grimy apartment quickly uncovered solid links to the previous murders that he had committed. One of the walls in his living room was plastered with newspaper clippings containing articles that described the many crimes committed by his serial killer victims. Each clipping had an X mark scrawled through them in black felt-tip marker, suggesting that Leland had been crossing their names out one by one as he killed them. In a side room that had been converted into a crude darkroom, agents also found reams of surveillance images and stacks of videotapes that featured members of the serial crimes unit going about their daily lives. And on a computer hard drive from the same room, the SCU's digital forensics team discovered hundreds of hours' worth of recorded calls between SCU agents. Using his family's wealth, Leland had somehow managed to not only purchase sophisticated bugging and phone tapping equipment, but he'd also used that tech to monitor the activities of the entire SCU unit. Every call from Stern to Mallory, every data transfer between Ethan and Rosa, he had recordings of them all, along with copies of almost all of the SCU's case files that he'd stolen after hacking into their systems. No wonder he'd always been able to track down the killers before the SCU could find them. He had exactly the same leads as them, but SKX didn't need to wait for orders or approvals from those higher up before making a move. Agents at the scene also uncovered a pile of scrappy diaries lying on the floor of Leland's bedroom, their pages filled with what looked like the scribblings of a madman. These crude manifestos were written in jagged letters using an assortment of coloured biros, and in them, Leland describes a chance meeting with someone or something he called the Dark Primary. According to the diary, the Dark Primary was a being of supreme evil and a prominent member in a religious cult and secret society called the Oro. Leland then goes on to describe how members of the Oro would insert horribly disfiguring metal implants into their faces and vocal cords in order to tune their voices. He then writes how the vibrations emitted by an Oro member's tuned scream were able to destroy not only flesh and bone, but brain tissue too. The effects of this could turn even the most mild-mannered people into sadistic and violent individuals, and, as he explains in the diaries, it was the reason why he began to grow increasingly violent and aggressive, exhibiting savage brutality whenever he could. Terrified by his own impulses after nearly murdering a lost child one night, Leland's conscience got the better of him and he resolved to find a positive outlet for his newfound aggression. And so he decided to take it out on the large number of serial killers who terrorised Metro City. All he needed to do first was find out where they were. Now, whether any of that is true or just the fevered imagination of a lunatic is anyone's guess. The FBI, however, has officially stated that it believes the journal entries to be fabrications and an investigation launched into the Oro after the diaries were discovered uncovered nothing of significance at all. Merely rumours of an ancient cult going by the Latin name Oro Invictus or Invincible Voice that had been said to have been formed over 3,000 years ago. But according to historians, there's no actual proof that that cult ever even existed. And those, my friends, were the criminal origins of Leland Van Horn, a.k.a. Serial Killer X. 
Nowadays, SKX is seen as a bit of an anti-hero, largely thanks to things like the SKX Netflix show or, of course, the upcoming movie from Lionsgate Films, Van Horn, The Voice of Vengeance. Some people even call him an acceptable serial killer, likening him to the fictional vigilante serial killer Dexter, a man whose fans believe is saving the lives of innocent people by killing evil people. In the minds of those who admire them, allowing another innocent victim to die is a far greater crime than removing the killer from the face of the earth. And so to them, people like Dexter and serial killer X are heroes. But here's the thing. Whilst to some people, SKX's motives could be seen as admirable, it's important to remember that Leland wasn't killing these killers to make the world a better place. He was doing it as a way to satisfy his own bloodlust in as guilt-free way as possible. An actor may have spoken the words that you heard earlier, but SKX's meaning was clear. He got a thrill from killing people. It was all a game to him. He didn't kill his victims with their own methods as part of a self-righteous crusade against evil. He only did it like that because it was fun and dramatic and he enjoyed it. He was a murderer and a serial killer, and in his wake, not only did he leave the bodies of nine people who should have stood trial for the crimes they committed, but he also played a part in the death of Samuel Tibbetts and brutally murdered SCU agent Jared Mallory, robbing a wife of her husband and a daughter of her father. And there's nothing admirable about that. Thank you all so much for listening to episode two of Virtual Criminality. If you enjoyed it, do follow at Virtual Crime Pod on Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you can to hear the next episode as soon as it's uploaded. Share it with your true crime stroke video game loving friends. And if you're feeling really generous, please do leave a review on your podcast app of choice. They all help boost the visibility of the show. Talking of reviews, thank you so much to everyone who listened to episode one of Virtual Criminality and left some positive feedback. If you follow me on my YouTube channel, Platform 32, you may know that I was extremely nervous when it came to putting this podcast out into the world. And your kind words really motivated me to crack on with this episode and get it finished. So big shout outs to Toffee Boy, Humble Columbus, Charles J33, Wilco Clahas, and I am Ian W for leaving some lovely five-star reviews on iTunes that in all honesty gave me the confidence to make this episode happen. Anyway, thanks once again for listening. I'm aiming to be back at the end of next month with episode three of Virtual Criminality, so hopefully I'll see you then. 